So I'm reading from Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Um, we can say together, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning, everybody. Can you all hear me okay? Good. Um, I have an extra large, irregular-sized head, and nothing uh, head-shaped ever fits me correctly, so I'm just hoping the mic stays in place this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles and your apps with you, you can um, open up to John chapter 3. And if you want to use your bulletins, maybe as a bookmark uh, there to keep it open in Numbers chapter 21, we're going to be uh, in those two texts this morning. So uh, Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me tell you about a class that was offered just a couple years ago at Yale University titled Psychology and the Good Life. It was taught by Dr. Lori Santos. And at the time of the class being offered, over 1,200 students enrolled in the class, which is nearly one quarter of the undergraduate population of Yale. It was the most popular course in the history of the school, and it was so popular they only offered it once because of the way it affected all of the other class schedules at the school. Reflecting on the significance of the course, one of the students said when she was interviewed, she said, the fact that a class like this has such large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions, both positive and negative, so they can focus on their work or the next step or the next accomplishment. In other words, no matter what they thought might satisfy, students still found themselves increasingly anxious and depressed and unhappy. Looking back on the impact that the course made on the student body, Dr. Santos said this, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery or getting a good grade, are completely and totally wrong. If our intuitions about how to be happy and how to be satisfied and how to find joy are wrong, then how can we ever truly be satisfied? However, can we truly find joy? You and I live in a world that relentlessly sells us different messages and different paths to the good life, to being happy and joyful and satisfied. The pursuit of happiness is, after all, the American birthright. Buy this product, eat this food, have this experience, and you'll find what you're really looking for. We just came out of a season where we were bombarded with deals on the newest gadgets and clothing and appliances 
selling us on the idea that these are the items that we really need to make our life something special. But the ironic thing is that in this very same culture, we find that those who have the most are often the least satisfied. A quick Google search will reveal example after example of the rich and the famous lamenting their fame and their fortune. Many celebrities are becoming increasingly public about their struggles with anxiety and depression brought about by that same success that they thought would make them happy. Two of the more well-known examples come from some of our most celebrated athletes. Andre Agassi, the great tennis champion, has now famously lamented in his autobiography that he hated tennis. Here's what he said. He said, now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. And the good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad. Not even close. And if you're in this room and you've struggled with addictions or gambling, then you know this to be true. And of course, there's Tom Brady in his uh, famous 2005 60 Minutes interview When asked how he felt about having three Super Bowl wins and being the most popular NFL player, he said, I just can't shake this feeling. There's got to be more than this. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're feeling this kind of pressing emptiness. Maybe it's something that's brought about for you by the start of this new year. I want you to know that I think God has a good word for all of us this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about what it looks like in our lives to be dissatisfied, and to have a complaining and a grumbling heart. We're going to look at the consequences that our complaining and our grumbling and our dissatisfaction have have on us, and then I hope we'll also be able to see where we can find true joy and true happiness in this life. So we're going to be looking at two texts, Numbers 21 and John chapter 3, which I'll read in just a moment. These are really two of the more well-known passages in the Bible, in part because of this incident and the image of the serpent in the wilderness and needing to be raised up, but also because this is one of the clearest images that Jesus uses in his ministry to describe his own work and what he has accomplished for us. And so I think in these two texts, we will see ourselves in the Israelites, their lack of contentment, their grumbling, and their dissatisfaction, and we'll find that true happiness and joy And true life can only be found in Jesus. So let's turn our attention now to the reading of God's word from John chapter 3. And I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll go all the way through John uh, 3.17. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, for the wind blows where it wishes, And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray together. Father, during this time now where we open up your word, we pray that you might open up our hearts and our ears to receive your word and that you would humble us to sit under it and not over it, thinking, us, thinking ourselves able to judge it for ourselves. So draw near to us during this time and speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin in Numbers 21 to look at what a complaining and a grumbling dissatisfied heart looks like. The passage in Numbers 21 comes on the heels of a turning point in the book of Numbers. Beginning in Numbers 11, we find that the people of Israel proved themselves to be a complaining and a grumbling people, never satisfied with God, never satisfied with his provision, always looking back to Egypt as if it was better than what God would lead them to in the future. There are seven episodes of complaint recorded between Numbers 11 and Numbers 20, and each time there is a repeated pattern of complaint, then discipline, and then a means of deliverance. Numbers 20 is a dark chapter in the narrative. Not only is this where Moses acts in anger and is then sentenced to die outside of the promised land, but it's also where we read of Moses' siblings, his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron, both die in Numbers chapter 20. But amidst all of this darkness, there is hope because the death of Moses' siblings tells us that the first generation of Israelites, those who were in Egypt, came out, grumbled, and then who were sentenced to never enter the promised land, they're beginning to die. Numbers 33 tells us that Aaron's death came 40 years after they had left Egypt. And so the first generation is beginning to die, and the second generation now stands ready to inherit the promised land. There will soon be a turn of, uh, turn of fortune for the second generation, as the beginning of Numbers 21 indicates. We read in Numbers 21.3 of this great victory by these second generation Israelites with the destruction of the Canaanites and their cities at a place called Hormah. Forty years earlier, Spies had been sent into the land, and they came back, and you may remember they reported out of fear that the people in the land were too strong, and that they wouldn't be able to take the promised land. Even though God had promised victory, the Israelites doubted and believed the spies. And soon after that happened, the Canaanites came up out of the land, and they pursued the people of Israel and defeated them at the place called Hormah. And so now 40 years earlier, what was once uh, the site of humiliating defeat now becomes the site of overwhelming victory for the second generation. And so surely this new generation of Israelites, they're going to be a people of faith and of love and of joy in their God, right? 
Not quite. As we read, the sins of the first are passed down to the second, and the people grumble. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? There's no food or water here. This is the same complaint which arose from the first generation decades earlier in Exodus 16 and 17. In this complaint of the second generation, we see at least three symptoms of a complaining and grumbling heart. And the first is dissatisfaction with God. You see, God had provided food and water over and over again for the Israelites in the wilderness. Each day for 40 years, he did so. He even promised them enough food and water that they could rest on the Sabbath and not have to work. And yet they're still not satisfied. They doubt the goodness of God's provision for their lives. Our dissatisfaction with God can often be found when we use phrases like, if I could just, if I could just have this, then I'll be happy. If this could just happen for me, then I'll know it'll be okay. If I could just have this experience or, or this vacation, then, I can, then I'll finally be able to rest. When we're dissatisfied with God's provision, we look to other people, places, or things to satisfy other than God. The second symptom of a complaining heart is a desire for something more. It's not that the people of Israel did not have food or water, but they wanted more food and water. They wanted better food and water. The force of the Hebrew here is really something along the lines of something like this. This food makes us want to vomit. The human heart, when it is dissatisfied with God, will always diminish the good gifts of God and desire something more and better for itself. This is what the prophet Jeremiah would later call empty cisterns. That we make broken and empty cisterns for ourselves that can hold no water. And at the same time, we forsake the fountain of living waters where true life is found. Third, a complaining heart is always rooted in jealousy, envy, and comparison. Remember that this complaint is coming from the second generation Israelites. Most of them, maybe all of them, had never even stepped foot in the land of Egypt. They did not know what Egypt was like, but they had heard the grumbling stories of their parents who said that in Egypt there really was plenty of delicious food and water to drink and the slavery thing wasn't so bad. If we could just eat what our parents ate, then we would have full bellies. You see? And here's something ironic. These second generation Israelites think that Egypt would be better than the wilderness. But if you fast forward a few hundred years to the book of John, in John chapter 6, when the people come to Jesus and he explains to them that he is the bread from heaven, they say, we want signs like the people in the wilderness got. So they think that the wilderness is better. 
And when Jesus says that he's the bread from heaven, the people grumble. It's so easy to compare what we have with others, isn't it? A few months ago, we were, um, Neva, Felix, and I, we were on vacation in Williamsburg. And it was a, it was a wonderful vacation. Uh, really sweet, super low-key, chill, laid back, and it honestly could not have been better. And we really enjoyed it. At the same time, it was also the only vacation we could afford, right? And so while we're down there, my banker friend, whose family takes extravagant vacations every year, he's sending me pictures of he and his wife hiking in the Andes. And I've gotten used to the fact that he always takes these great vacations, so it doesn't really bother me anymore. But it's in moments like that, right, where you think what you have is good, and then you see something else. And all of a sudden, you start to feel like maybe this isn't so great anymore. What I have is okay, but man, that would be great. Maybe for you, it's not physical stuff. Maybe for you, it's being stuck for years comparing your job or your career to others. Maybe you're comparing your marriage or the relationship you have with your kids to what others have. And you know that every time you start down that path, it's going to leave you empty and dry. But we do it anyways. The sad reality is, is that when our hearts are consumed by complaint and comparison, we go through life preparing to be happy, but never actually being happy. Happiness and joy and satisfaction are always on the horizon, but just out of reach. And so this is the complaining heart, a heart that is dissatisfied with God, always looking for something more, starved because it can't help but compare itself with others. And there are consequences to our complaining and grumbling. As we saw in the book of Numbers, the second generation found out there can be serious consequences for our complaining and grumbling. Numbers 21.6 says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of them died. The wages of sin and unbelief continue to be death for this second generation. Now you may be asking the familiar question, snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? We need to recognize that neither the consequence nor the cure that God provides are random. It's not as if God was just sitting up in heaven spinning some kind of wheel, picking the next random consequence to send on his people. This was a sign that was full of meaning for the Israelites and continues to be full of meaning for us today. These serpents were a fresh reminder of the power of Egypt to which they were so desperate to return. Snakes were a well-known meaning of power in Egypt. You may have seen images of the crowns of Pharaoh, right, with the snake or the cobra on the front. Archaeologists have discovered in their excavations from this region a 13th century BC temple to the Egyptian god Hathor. And inside this temple, inside what they believe is the holy place of the temple, they have found a metal snake that was used in worship. 
And so that these serpents are described as fiery likely has little to do with their appearance, but with their bite. The inflammation and the pain caused by the bite and the subsequent burning prompted them to be called fiery. Perhaps the sting and the pain of the venom was to give the second generation Israelites an idea of the pain of the whips and the suffering which Egypt had put on their parents. But the meaning of the fiery serpents goes even deeper, doesn't it? For the serpent is a simple symbol of our ultimate enemy, Satan himself. It was Satan who, in the form of a serpent, had infiltrated the garden and deceived our first father, Adam, to believing that God could not satisfy. It was Adam's lack of faith and his dissatisfaction in God which brought about the sin of this fallen world. As Romans 5.12 tells us, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was in the form of these fiery serpents that death spread throughout the camp because of their sin. God allowed the Israelites to see and feel the consequences of their sin because they could not see the poison in their souls until they first felt the poison in their bodies. You see, left to ourselves, we will often not wake up to our own need. We never see what's really wrong with our lives, why we are so dissatisfied, why we continue to do the very things which we know will, will just leave us empty or in pain. Something, often something must happen to us in our lives to wake us up for our need for Christ. And you might ask the question, how could God be kind to do something like this? How could God be just or kind to use suffering in order to get us to turn to him? But here's what we need to remember. God is good. God is the source of all good, and he doesn't give out vengeance or revenge in the way that sinners do. And the sin in our hearts is like a terminal illness. And we don't know it's there until the symptoms put us in the doctor's chair. The consequences of our sin are meant to drive us to the great physician. And this is exactly what happens to the Israelites. The weight of their sin was revealed and it drove them to repentance. They knew their pain and their trouble was self-induced. There was no longer an excuse for their complaining. Their hearts are moved in repentance, and so they confess to Moses, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And when our hearts are humbled and moved to repentance, we're ready to receive the cure for our complaining and dissatisfied hearts. God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent and to lift it up, for all the people to see. It's likely it would not have been a pole so much as it would have been a pike, piercing the very thing which had brought death to the people. The snake hoisted up was a sign to the people of the powerlessness of Egypt and the crushing defeat that God would someday give 
to that serpent, Satan. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that an offspring of Eve would come and crush the head of Satan. And in our reading from John 3 today, we discover that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring who has defeated the power of Satan and the power of sin once and for all. And so as he told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so what does this mean for us? To receive the cure for our complaining and sinful hearts, all the Israelites needed to do was look upon the bronze serpent and they would live. To look at the bronze serpent was a sign of faith that God had conquered the powerlessness of Egypt and the power of sin and Satan. And when we look to Jesus, we discover that life, that true life, that new life can only be found in him and him alone. On the cross, Jesus was punished as sin itself. He received the eternal death that we deserved, that Egypt deserved, that we all deserved, that even the serpent deserved. He deserved what evil and sin deserved so that we might find life. Let me just apply this for us in two ways. First, I want to say a quick word to those of you who are here and who have not yet committed yourself to following Jesus as Lord. On behalf of my friends here at King's Cross, I think I can say that they want you to know that they're really glad that you're here. And I know that you will trust, that you will find this to be a a safe uh, place for you to, to trust others and to engage with others, to ask your questions and to discover Christ. And so I want to invite you this morning to to stick around for a little while. Not just today, but for weeks and months ahead. Surround yourself with people who have found life and joy in Christ to see what that might look like for you. But let me tell you a little something about what it looks like to take this cure that is offered to us in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, he doesn't just tell him that he needs to have his sins forgiven. Forgiven, He says that Nicodemus needs to be born again. It's not just that we need to have a clean slate. It's that we need to be made new, you see. When the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent, it wasn't enough for their grumbling and their complaining to be forgiven. They needed to be healed. Jesus told Nicodemus, And he's telling us today that we need not just to be pardoned, but to be healed and to be made new. And he's offering us the medicine which will make us new and change us from the inside out. So how does this happen? Friend, all you have to do is look. Look to Jesus and trust in him that this promise of life to you is true. And here are four ways that you will begin to know that God is at work in you, causing you to be born again. First, the pleasures of this world will really start to feel empty. When Jesus is at work in our hearts, he begins to show us that what we thought would bring us happiness and satisfaction really just leaves us empty and dry. Whether that was a job or a relationship or pursuing some kind of status, none of these things will bring the happiness that they promised to us. 
And we discover that once we have what we think we wanted, we just end up wanting something else instead. And so he begins to reveal the emptiness of what we're seeking. Second, the pain of sin will begin to grieve you. The pain you've caused to others, the carelessness of your actions, the emptiness of what you're pursuing will start to become more than you can bear. When Jesus was at work in my heart and began to draw me to himself, I became painfully aware of how many people I had damaged relationally, how many relationships I had burned out of my bitterness and my envy. And I began to realize that if this was how much pain I was causing those who I said I loved, then how much more had I offended a perfect and holy God? Third, New life in Jesus will begin to look very sweet. Jesus said in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And before God does a work in our hearts, that will be nothing more to you than a cheesy bumper sticker. But as God begins to show us the emptiness of our pursuits and the weight of our sin, that beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will become amazingly simple and yet profoundly beautiful. And what's so amazing about the remedy in Numbers 21 is that God didn't say, here's the list of things that you need to do to get back in favor with me. No, he just says, look and live. Look and live. And God's promise is that he will make you new. Fourth and finally, you'll be filled with a new joy. The fruit of being born again is new life in Christ, which produces hope and love and joy. And when you know for yourself that God loved you and that he gave his son for you, that love has the power to change you. You'll find that it's possible to have joy and gratitude even in the worst of circumstances. You'll discover that no matter what others may say to you or do to you, that you have infinite worth with God. The fourth century African church father, St. Augustine, he was well known for living a life of lust and womanizing prior to coming to Christ. Years later, after his conversion, he was walking down the street in public, and one of his former mistresses walked by and tried to get his attention. But when he just kept on walking and didn't pay her any mind, she cried out to him and she said, "Uh, Augustine, it is I. And he turned and he looked at her and he said, I know, but it is not I. Augustine discovered what it meant to be born again and to have new life in Jesus. He learned what it meant to stop looking to other things to define us and find that what is now most precious is that new life that we can find in Christ. And so, friend, if you don't know Christ, I invite you to stick around and discover him for yourself. And last, just a closing word for those of you who are here in Christ this morning, a word of encouragement. Um, Some days, some seasons, some years, it can be really hard to find joy, can't it? I don't want to just brush over that and be naive about that. 
Um, maybe this is a hard season or a hard year or a hard decade for you. In a way, I have nothing new to tell you. But I do want to encourage you with something this morning that has hit me recently like a ton of bricks and that I hope is an encouragement to you. I want to draw your attention to verse 16 of John 3. I want us to feel the weight of this together this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave. It was brought to my attention reading a book uh, titled The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, a book I'd recommend to each of you in this room, that it's really easy in our thinking to begin to distort what this really means. And it's really easy to begin to confuse the message that Jesus Christ died so our sins would be forgiven with the idea that Jesus Christ died so that we would be loved by God. The first statement is true. The second one is not. Look at what this says. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus Christ did not purchase God's love for us. He is the assurance of God's love for us. And if we begin to twist this in our thinking, we start to think that, well, what if Jesus' death really didn't apply to me? What if, if Jesus had to persuade God to like and to love me, then what if I let him down? But that's not the teaching of the scriptures. God so loved the world that he gave. God loved you and I so much that he gave. First John says, Christ is the manifestation of God's love for us, not the cause of God's love. And so, my friends, if you are in Christ this morning, let me encourage you that God loves you because he loves you. And you know that to be true because Jesus came into the world to be the assurance of God's love for us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us faith to look to Christ this morning. Some, perhaps for the first time, and some of us for the hundredth time. Help us to find joy in you and life in you and hope. And as we go from here, to rest in the love that we have received from you. Impress it upon our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.